Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to Farm Food Facts for Wednesday, July 17th, 2019. I'm Phil Lempert, your host. The Michigan Agriculture Environmental Assurance Program is an innovative, proactive program that helps farms of all sizes and all commodities voluntarily prevent or minimize agriculture pollution risks. We're going to talk with a representative of the program and with Scott Lonier, participating farmer. First up is Joe Kilpinski, who's the program manager for Michigan Agriculture Environmental Insurance Program of the Michigan Department of Agriculture and Rural Development. His responsibilities in the program, including managing the day-to-day operations, overseeing grants with local conservation districts, working with partners to continue to improve, promote, and evaluate the program, and working with communication and technical committees within the program to address issues and review standards within their systems. Joe, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thank you for having me, Phil. So tell us about the Michigan Agriculture Environmental Assurance Program. What are its goals and objectives? Well, the program started as an idea back in the late 1990s, 1998 to be exact. Uh, At the time in Michigan, our farmers were under intense pressure uh, from environmental groups, from the general public that felt we were not doing an effective job of taking care of and being good stewards of the environment. Michigan had a fairly robust right to farm law that protects farmers from nuisance lawsuits. But the, uh, the reality of that is that that's a complaint driven system. And so so you, unless a farmer had a complaint, they really didn't know that they were, they were following all the recommended practices. And so our agricultural industries wanted to put together a program that basically demonstrated to the public that the, the farmers in the state of Michigan were doing a good job in protecting the environment, that they were following the laws and regulations, that they were good stewards of the land. And kind of out of that idea and out of that partnership of farmers and commodity groups and, and organizations in, in, the, in the alphabet agencies at the state level, as well as Michigan State University, the MEAT program was born. Uh, it was designed, its goal was to provide a proactive, voluntary environmental program uh, that helps farmers meet or exceed state and federal laws uh, in a cost-effective method or manner that, that maintains their economic livelihood. We wanted them to be able to address those laws and regulations, uh, and yet they've got to be able to to farm and stay in business. Um, Otherwise, you know, they're gone, and what does it matter at that point? So that was the original goal of the program, and and the objectives were basically to educate producers, uh, to provide technical assistance in the form of of grants through conservation districts, to actually put boots on the ground to work one-on-one directly with farmers, uh, and ultimately provide continuous improvement on farm with respect to, to reducing environmental impacts from, from agriculture. So what do you think are the biggest challenges, uh, both for the farmer and for the rest of the planet, to environmental stewardship? Currently on the ag side right now, Phil, I would say the biggest thing is, is just farm sector profitability. Um, I know you've had interactions with agriculture, so you understand it uh, fairly well, but there is really uh, are we are struggling in agriculture right now and in pretty much all the sectors from a profitability standpoint when farmers aren't making any money or in in some sectors actually losing money and eating into equity to stay afloat and and to keep operating 
there isn't money to make changes on the farm that, you know, environmental changes, things that will have a positive impact on the environment. Mm -hmm. At that point, farms are just struggling to stay in business. And so the, the profitability standpoint is a big one. I think we have a lot of variability between farms. When I talk to the non-farming public about agriculture and they say, well, why don't you just regulate it? Why don't you make them do this? Uh, I try and come from the, the standpoint of educating them that farms from one farm to the next, none of them are the same. Right. This right. is not two automobile manufacturing plants side by side <laughs> where you can put regulations on them and, and their, their practices and their production methods are pretty much identical. So the things you implement are identical. Uh, the farms are so different, whether it's the production types of systems, the crops they grow, the tillage systems they use, their fertility and nutrient plans and management. They vary so much that things that you may require a farm to do may be super effective on one farm and absolutely have the opposite effect on the other farm and actually make things worse than they were. So, you know, that variability um, kind of makes it more difficult. You have to have something that allows you to address, uh, you know, farms on an individual basis. I think there's very much a disconnect as a challenge between the public and farms and farmers today. Uh, we've known that has grown over the years, uh, but there is certainly a, a large disconnect People see, for example, a, a classic, uh, you know, story that was told to me literally last week was uh, a friend of mine who works peripherally in agriculture had a meeting with some corporate um, executives, and they were talking about agriculture and how all farms were corporate farms, mm -hmm. and they based that on driving by fields and seeing things like you know, DeKalb right. seed right. or Monsanto products, which were just things the farmer was advertising that they were using. Maybe they were test plots. Right. But based on that observation, they felt that all farms were corporate owned. Wow. And, uh, and so, the, you know, the public doesn't understand that aspect of it. They don't understand what we do in agriculture, why we do it, uh, that we're not out there spraying or, or fertile, over fertilizing just, you know, because we want to. Uh, we're out there actually trying to micromanage all of our inputs strictly to maintain profitability that I saw another meme that said, you know, uh, a farmer works 400 hours a month for no pay to feed a public that thinks he's trying to kill them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's what we get as, as we talk about, you know, the, the whole GMO thing. Yeah. How do we change this? How do we change the dialogue and, and the understanding of the public? That's the million dollar question. I've spent um, it really my entire career, you know, 30 plus years working in adult education, working to try and educate, you know, farmers and, and the public on things. Um, that can only be done between kind of a continuous dialogue. But the vehicle to, that you use to bring that dialogue, I don't have a good answer on how, how we make that happen. It's not like we... For example, in the meat program, we're trying to make the public understand the value of that sign, what farmers have done to to get that sign mm -hmm. out in front of their farm. And, and we've really struggled with it because what aspect or, or what portion of the public do you want to approach first? Do you go for decision makers, you know, the moms in the grocery store, the, the elected officials? Do you go for the young folks that are probably compared to some of us older folks, they, were, they grew up in a greener environment. They grew up more environmentally conscious. 
do we target them first? I don't know. There's so many different mm -hmm. diverse groups and you know, we have limited funds. I honestly can't give you a good answer on what's the best vehicle to do that. I think it's, it's situationally specific. Uh, and I think it's specific to, you know, whatever you're trying, you know, the message you're trying to send. And the one good thing is to have more people listen to Farm Food Facts, to hear right from farmers, right from thought leaders like yourself, um, and get that message out there, hopefully loud and clear. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today on Farm Food Facts. Thank you for having me. And now for the news. The most delicious foods will fall victim to climate change. The biggest way that most folks here on planet Earth will experience climate change is through its impact on food. We've heard a lot about forest fires and mega droughts and these types of issues that come with climate change. But Jerry Hatfield, the USDA scientist, has made the realization that the broadest disruption caused by climate change will be in food systems. In the U.S., we import more than half of our fruit, so we're heavily reliant on other regions of the world to produce the food we love. For example, coffee and chocolate. The corn and soy farmers in the Midwest are dealing with flood damage to their fields. And in Italy, there was an olive oil shortage due to extreme weather. So people are beginning to tune in as we realize that strawberries and Chardonnay are on the line. Everything is at risk, but the good food, the most at risk, the high nutrient delicious foods. This is why it's more important than ever to be aware of the impending effects of climate change and to actively become stewards of the land, protecting our natural environment through conservation and sustainable practices. What grocers need to know is that every grocer needs to make their commitment and join We Are All In. And on that note, here's how farmers can help protect their land and soil. Conservationists advise us to make small shifts over time. Many farmers are moving towards new conservation practices to help maintain the health of their soil, and some may require more planning. This is why making small shifts over time may be the best practice. One of the more popular conservation tactics is making the switch from conventional tillage to no-till farming, and definitely something to prepare for, as it could affect a farmer's soil in the first couple of years. When done too abruptly, it's a bit like biologic shock, which can impair the nutrient system. Additionally, switching from till to no-till during a corn year, for example, can cause some yield drag unless we keep nutrient cycling in mind and offer the corn a little extra nutrition to get it over that transition hump. The ideal would be switching to no-till during a soybean year, as soybeans tend to be more resilient and typically won't experience significant yield loss or following a corn crop with a cover crop and then a first year of no-till soybeans following with another cover crop before the first year of no-till corn. The introduction of cover crops, in particular cereal rye, is also becoming a popular practice due to its soil benefits. What grocers need to know is that switching from conventional tillage to no-till farming takes planning. It could affect a farmer's soil in the first year or two, which could affect yield and supply to your stores. Just one more reason to work closely and communicate with your farmer suppliers. Today, we're going to talk to a farmer. We're going to talk to Scott Lonier, who he, with his brother Steve, are fifth-generation co-owners of 
family's farm located in Lansing, Michigan, just minutes away from the state capitol. They own and operate 4,200 acres in two counties, and they grow corn, soybeans, and wheat. Scott, welcome to Farm Food Facts. My pleasure. So I guess where I want to start is where I start with most farmers. The past year, 18 months, has really been difficult because of weather conditions and the climate. How are you dealing with them, and what have been some of your issues? Well, the weather the weather is always an issue in our business in agriculture. We 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 don't determine our outcomes at the end of the year. That's all determined by Mother Nature, by by the by our weather that we see with our rain, with our temperature, our heat that we have. Uh, she decides how much we're going to produce, and then the Chicago Board of Trade is the one that sets the price for us. So, unlike most, you know, I, I like to think of agriculture as manufacturing because we are manufacturing food and fuel for the world. So most other manufacturers, whether it be automotive or anything else, they already know as they're coming down the line exactly what profit they're going to make on each vehicle as it comes down there. In agriculture, we don't know that. Our our our, our outcome's completely undetermined as we start, and we're kind of high-risk gamblers and uh, take the good with the bad. So, Scott, your family has always been proactive when it comes to the environment and sustainability on the farm. What have you been doing, and what have you noticed to be some of the changes? So some of the major changes, our, our farm uh, became farmsteaded here. Our family started it in 1876. And when it was started, the location of where it was was conducive because we weren't far from uh, the local river, but there was also an open drainage ditch that ran uh, right down to the river that drained because we're pretty rolling ground. So there was water that uh, open ditch that drained right down through there. Well, when the family was homesteaded uh, and we used to have cows and as everybody had livestock back then, and, uh, and they, they, they picked this location because it had an access for water. So the cows, the cows always had water whenever they were thirsty. They would walk down to the stream, which was right down the river, right down, you know, right down a half mile from the, from the, from the river where the ditch jumped into. So, uh, over the years, we realized that it wasn't good to have your cows going down drinking out of the, drinking out of that open ditch because when they were drinking, they were also doing other things there that was <laughs> polluting the river. So, it, you know, it, it started probably 50 years ago when we, when we fenced in the pasture and fenced off both sides of the open ditch and, and put, in, put in a watering system out there so they had different water source and uh, trying to keep the, you know, the pollutants, the, the excrement and urine from running down in there as much as we could. But, uh, you know, so it started with that and then just kind of slowly progressed. Uh, our, our area became, we had a big urban sprawl in our area back in the, in the mid to late 90s and uh, just get, became populated with the houses and uh, you know, everybody had underground fuel tanks back then, and we were one of the first ones to dig our fuel tanks up, up, and at least put them on top of the ground. That way, we knew that if there was a leak, it was, you know, we could know that it was leaking instead of not finding out secondhand. But then we realized that, you know, hey, that open ditch is still down downhill from where the fuel tanks sit, and that was that was kind of the start of the whole thing. Is when when we realized that, you know, the impact, the environmental impact that we could directly have with the point source pollution on our farm because we were so close to to a major tributary. So um, from then, we just, you know, kept doing a little bit here and there, different things, implementing different things to to, to control that. And then, um, you know, like I said, we were rolling ground too. So we've had erosion has been an issue for us. And we've got miles and miles of grass waterways in our fields to keep the erosion and keep all the topsoil in place and give a give a place for the water to run down to, uh, to get down to the open ditch without uh, eroding and, and leaving a bunch of uh, gullies in our fields. So, you know, for about a decade, you've been MAEAP certified. Um, what does that mean? And you say that other farmers should consider doing the same. Why? 
so so the the acronym BEEP stands for Michigan Agricultural Environmental Assurance Program, and and what that is is it kind of piggybacks on uh, first of all in 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 legislature there's a thing called GAMPS, which is generally accepted management practices, which is the best practices which are which are the, just generic standards by which all farms are set to operate by. If you don't if you don't abide by those generally accepted management practices, you could be out of compliance and, and open to lawsuits for, for different things. It could be for erosion. It could be for contamination. It could be for all these other things. And 99.9% and of the farmers are all in compliance with, with the GAMS. But, what, but with the, the verification, the meat verification, what that does uh, in the state of Michigan, we're pretty unique that we're, we're, and we're very fortunate to have that. Um, it, what that does, it, it allows our um, our Department of Agriculture sends somebody out, and they're a third-party verifier, and they have a little bit stricter criteria uh, what they go by versus what the the generally accepted practices are. A little bit stricter criteria. You got a, a few more things that that you got to meet in order to become the certification for MEEP, and there's uh, multiple certifications you can have, um, whether it be just your farmstead. It could be your cropping, it could be your livestock, it could be your uh, your woods, your woodland, your habitat. It can be greenhouse, nursery, and so so we have it. Uh, we we don't we don't have livestock, so we have just our, our farmstead and our cropping systems. But basically, what that is 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 we have uh, somebody from the Michigan Department of Agriculture comes out here and goes through a checklist and sets puts boots on our ground and walks around and and just double checks and verifies that yep, you guys are meeting going above and beyond all these standards which are set by the legislature in the generally accepted management practices. And they're just, a, it's a third party verification that's done by the state. Um, what it does is it, it does afford us a little bit of extra protection. Should, should something happen uh, being verified, say we have a, 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 something happens, even though our, our, all our fertilizer and our pesticide is all double, double walled contained, it's got secondary containment on it. But if something happens to a truck that uh, leaks on the road or something uh, unforeseen happens like that, uh, it, it, it helps us out in so far as gives us support to uh, to get a cleanup crew there uh, right away and uh, to help cover some of not the, the cost for doing it, but it takes away your liability because we've we've had all our stuff certified by somebody else saying that, hey, you guys are doing the right thing. You're doing all you can do unless there's an unforeseen event, act of nature that sure. that would sure. uh, that would make something bad happen as a catastrophe. Scott, Shady Lodge Farm has been around, as you said, since 1876. Fifth generation is sixth generation on the way. Yeah, my my nephew, my brother Steve, his uh, his oldest son is 27. Great. And he's he works on the farm right now. He's full time on the farm, so it's uh, the three of us. That are full time on the farm. Our father has uh, become a snowbird uh, <laughs> since we well bought deserved. him out. He goes yeah. back and forth. He enjoys he enjoys the warm weather, and uh, he, he goes out to Arizona from oh usually about the second frost is when we say that's when he's everybody asks when's he leave and we say whenever the second frost happens. So uh, usually it's sometime in early October, and then he comes back sometime in the middle of, middle of April and. So it comes down to the farm to boss everybody around all summer long. As he should. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for joining us on Farm Food Facts today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit fooddialogues.com under the Programs and Media tab and visit us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers or on Twitter at USFRA. 
Until next time.